I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. So we're commemorating a lot of firsts today. It's the first half of our first two-part episode. Are you calling it? And... Oh, wait, I want to talk about this. Is this, is it a two-part episode or is it two episodes about the same thing? I don't know, dude. We're going to split hairs up. I don't Two-part episode is confusing because every episode is two parts. Okay, it's, okay, it's true. Okay, okay, so it's a four-part episode. Fine. It's our first four-part four episode. Um, <laughs> it's the first of two conversations we're planning about how mass incarceration, this huge, huge issue, affects American communities. And there's so many wonderful books and writers working on this. Yeah, so we're going to have uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts and Zach Lazar joining us for the first half of that conversation, which is this episode you're listening to today. And in a later episode, we'll be joined by Tayari Jones and Damaris Hill. But before we get to that, another first I want to mention. Congratulations, Whitney. You're the first tenured co-host of this <laughs> podcast. Awesome, dude. I hear your son pronounces it Tenya. Hell yeah! Hell yeah. Uh, I, I dream of this and... and and just kudos to you. That's a huge amount of work, and oh, it is really it's awesome. A damn good thing that I applied for tenure before I started doing a podcast. So you know, oh my god, think about this soon. <laughs> you're thinking you're going to get there. We might have to. next. Next, we'll be doing the anxiety episode. Um, <laughs> no. So now to our first guest, our first ever lawyer guest on the show. Um, is that right? Wait, have we had any other lawyer writers join us? I don't. I don't think so, unless we're dissing somebody that I don't know about has a law degree. But but even if we had, uh, none of them would be like Reginald Dwayne Betts. Uh, Dwayne is the author of three books, po uh, poetry collections, the Bastards of the Reagan Era, and Shadid Reads His Own Palm, and the memoir, A Question of Freedom, which won an NAACP Image Award. 
He has a JD from Yale, an MFA, and is currently working on his doctorate in law, also at Yale. Dwayne, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Dwayne, Whitney always gets to me Missouri proud on the show, but I'm Maryland proud to have you here, even if you're in New Haven. I'm a huge fan of your writing about what some critics call our carceral state. You participated in a carjacking when you were 16 and ended up in prison for nine years. And then you got the degrees that Whitney mentioned. And last year, you were in the news when the Connecticut bar paused your admittance, saying you had to prove your moral character with, quote, clear and convincing evidence. In a 2009 interview with NPR, you said, quote, and the humanity is what we don't know about prisoners. And that's why prison reform, the prison reform movement is so slow, because once you commit a crime, people have a hard time thinking that you could redeem yourself. And then last year, that was very publicly your situation. How do you think Americans imagine prisoners and ex-prisoners, and how does that imagining, that myth, affect the real lives of prisoners and the people around them? Uh, man, that's a hard first question. <laughs> I, should, I should say... Um, I should say I got a I got an MFA from Warren Wilson College MFA program for writers. And I, I saw and that I, you went back there and spoke recently. Is that right? Yeah, I gave a commencement speech. I'm, awesome. uh, they gave me a, they gave me an honorary honorary doctorate, which is a uh, which is pretty cool because um because it goes to your question, right? So part of the question in terms of thinking about how people see prisoners, and, and I'll get into that part in a second, but it's all of the disdain that you give you with it's the level of distrust. It's this notion that um it's uncertain whether or not whether you'll be reliable. And that, that sort of questioning reliability frequently goes to things that have absolutely nothing to do with what you were incarcerated for. But at the same time, you have a lot of institutions like Warren Wilson, um, like the University of Maryland, like Prince George's Community College, like Yale. So you have, on one end of the spectrum, you have community colleges, and on the other end, you have elite universities um, that aren't trying to pigeonhole people who have been incarcerated. And I think... Um, the same thing exists, and it exists even more so in terms of the general public. You have a lot of people who, on an individual level, are welcoming, are warm, and just treat you like they would treat anybody else. So I think that the challenge and the real issue is to think about the fact that still it's a large majority of folks who think that just because you have been incarcerated, you don't deserve um, to be a part of society. So you don't deserve to work. You don't deserve to live where you want to live. You don't deserve to be able to purchase things that you want to purchase. And, uh, and I think that's the still struggle. You know, you don't deserve the opportunity to well, get you the don't count. deserve to vote. There are all kinds of laws to yeah. sort of remind people of that non-deserving status, right? In some ways, I think voting is the crux of everything. Because in some states, you, get, you can vote while in prison. Those happen to be the states where people of color don't live. You know, Maine, Vermont. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> But then in other states, you know, you could vote soon as you get out of prison. And then there are other states that you could vote once you get out of prison and are no longer on parole or probation. And then there are other states in which when you get out of prison, you could be off parole and probation, but you then have to apply for your voting rights back. And right now, there's a push to challenge these things. I mean, one of the things that I find kind of absurd is that we're only at the point now where we're asking the nation to catch up with Vermont and Maine. I know there's a, an, an effort in Florida specifically going forward on this. I remember reading something about that. Have you been following that? Desmond Mead, a formerly incarcerated guy, is leading the effort with a bunch of others. Uh, first, they had to collect, I think it was 600,000 signatures to get it on a ballot initiative. And it's to restore the right to vote to, um, I think it's more than a million 
people with criminal convictions in Florida, which which would be amazing, you know, because I think you lead with voting. And once you figure out voting, then it makes it harder to discriminate against people with a criminal record. You also mentioned, of course, that like, I mean, people of color and specifically blacks and Latinos are the people who are disproportionately incarcerated. So it seems to me like the link between disenfranchising people and racism and the the prison system, that's so tightly tied together. I mean, the United States is incarcerating more people than any other country in the world. And last night I was looking up statistics and I think the United States has about half the prisoners in the entire world. And this huge portion of the population that is in this kind of in this limbo with their voting rights or in these different situations. It's just a huge portion of the population that really throws in a question, like how much of a democracy we're in. Yeah, well, I mean, but the thing is, and this is what I struggle with, you know, the reality is that um, most Americans don't like people who commit crimes. And how do you reconcile your fa- your, your, the fact that you don't like people who commit crimes or you don't like the crimes that people commit with the notion that you should also not attempt to bar them from society for the rest of their lives because of like one or two or three acts. And I think that there's a rhetoric of criminal justice reform that, um, you know, is centered around racism, is centered around ideas that's advanced by people like Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow. And I think that rhetoric is important, that rhetoric is significant. It puts a highlight on the problem. But then when I go and try to get a job with, you know, a progressive nonprofit organization, they don't hire me the same way that I would expect the most staunch and, you know, the most staunch racist would respond. And so I think, yes, everything you said is true, but I think it's more complicated. And the thing that makes it more complicated is that we all want to live in a society that's safe from harm. And so we need to find a better way to reconcile our general principles of being like anti-black racist, our general principles of being, you know, hoping for egalitarian society with the fact that um, that we all tend to move towards being punitive when 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 we get an opportunity, and and you know you see that you see that today you see that with uh, the white woman called the police on on a on a, on a Yale student here, and all of the progressives and all of the black graduate students and I shouldn't say all of them because it's never all of anything but you had a a, a significant you know group of people calling for this young woman to be expelled from school. They immediately said, what's the most harsh punishment possible that we could get this person and let's go for that punishment. And I don't know how that's any different from what society generally does when they incarcerate me, when they incarcerate my brothers, when they incarcerate my sisters. And so, um, so yes, it's, it's, it's rooted in a history of racism, but the caveat is that violence and crime are real. And it seems like nobody likes violence or crime. And in fact, nobody really cares to restore the rights of folks I wanted to also mention one of the things that I remembered when I was following your uh, effort to join the bar um, was that you mentioned this earlier that you felt that sometimes people use the someone's status as a felon as an excuse for barring someone for different reasons that are more political. And that's sort of what that one felt like to me. I felt like the Connecticut bar felt like you were a they didn't agree with you politically, and that was what that was about. Is that a fair thing uh, for me to think? <laughs> not well. Is it fair to the Connecticut bar? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think the truth is probably that they looked at my application and said, "This guy has three felonies, and I'm not sure if he should be admitted to the bar." 
And I think that it was a process that is run by regular people who go to work on a nine to five. And, um, you know, and first of all, it's a lot of people who become attorneys and, and like um, like Cohen, once he gets indicted and convicted, it's nobody on the progressive side that's going to be arguing that he should immediately be allowed to practice law, say, if he gets a suspended sentence. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if it's, it's, it's not as if like this lacks legitimacy across the board. The question is always one of process. And what is the theoretical basis of denying somebody access to an opportunity based on them having had a criminal conviction? And in my case and in the case of a lot of folks who have a criminal conviction prior to entering law school or prior to being admitted to the bar, what happens is when they see that criminal conviction, it's like an automatic no. And the question becomes how onerous is the process to get the yes? Because in the state of Connecticut, first of all, you know, you have a job, you have to support a family and you could get that job coming out of law school. And you don't know if that job is going to stand behind you for a process that might stretch out to a year. Right. And that's a long process. And in other states, you can't take the bar exam until you get through that process, which means that you spent three years in law school. And then when all of your peers are taking a bar exam and you will be studying with them and preparing with them, you have to wait a year before you could do that. And over the course of that year, some of the things that was fresh in your mind have, have disappeared. And now it makes it more onerous for you to pass the bar. And of course, you can still pass it. But the question is, how does the process make the ultimate end goal even more complicated? Or like in my case, you know, they just see my name. They see the felonies. They just check no. And they don't call my references. You know, I'm not I don't have a problem with the process, but if you ask me to write down a list of references, if you ask me to write down every employee that I've had in life, then I think that you could call some of those people. <laughs> so, so, right. So it's and ultimately they made the right decision. But I think, too, that we discount the kind of um, trauma, stress, you know, emotional turmoil that goes with going through a process like this and a process that could be shortened. Like if, if, if this would have happened over the span of one week, I really couldn't complain. If it would have happened over the span of two weeks, I really couldn't complain. If somebody had called me and said, listen, sir, we see this has happened. We need to set up an interview with you and we'd like to get all of this done in process within a month so you can move on with your life. Are you available? Like these kind of things could would have made me say, you know what? Maybe I think it wasn't necessary, but they did everything that they could to make it work. And you push it back and take it another level and just say that I had to ask people that I know. You know, I collected over 200 letters. It was a change.org petition that got, you know, so many signatures that when you stack it up, it, it reached like two to three feet off the ground. And I mean, and that's a lot to go through. And that's a lot of your life to have to put on display. And I had people writing letters for me who respect me. But they shouldn't have had to put on display the reasons why they respect and admire and appreciate me. You know, these were like private moments and and, and a bunch of private moments became public um, because of this process. I write a lot about Sri Lanka where um, sort of bureaucracy is often a thing that's used to document people's stories. And then there's kind of often a situation where like there's supposed to be a report issued, um, like a product of all of these stories, a product of all of these work of all of these words, but they are often, I mean, kind of exactly as you say, private things that people never thought would have to be put on display for the state. And that is a thing that I struggle, um, to write about now that you've gone through this bureaucratic process and this very different kind of writing and being written to in some regard and then being written about in a different way. 
Um, has it? How has that affected your writing? One of the crazy things is that everything I said about what the Connecticut bar examiners were thinking about is all conjecture because there was no report produced. You know, I mean, um, I was trying to view them in that best light, but there's another version of it. And, and the reality is that we just don't even know. And this is the case for a lot of these um, bureaucracies around these kind of issues. But how has it changed yeah. my writing? I, I, I don't, I'm not sure how it's changed my writing, except to say that um, that I, I am now more aware of the invisible world. And there isn't a poetic discussion about um, the way in which these invisible bureaucracies work in the lives of people, particularly in the lives of people who have been convicted of felonies. I mean, I think about all of the jobs I've applied for that I didn't get, and, and I have no idea why I didn't get most of those jobs. And um, and I'm not saying that, you know, employers should have to, like, write out why you didn't get a job, but you realize that that's also a kind of bureaucratic decision. And in the case of somebody that's formerly incarcerated, it frequently is driven by their incarceration, and you just will never know. And, and I don't think that we talk about that enough, you know, the, the, the sort of invisible hand of stigma um, that, that motivates the opportunities that folks with criminal records actually have in society. But has it, in fact, influenced my rate? And I think it, I think it will. And I think it has to the degree that it makes me aware of my gaps. I mean, if you read Bastards of the Reagan era, it's almost to say that we live in an administrative state, you know, and that's neither a good nor a bad thing. It's just a fact. And you have agencies from, you know, housing to welfare agencies to um, sort of the agencies around employment, like the EEOC that set up to protect our interests. And all of these things are like, you know, administrative agencies that make thousands and thousands of discretionary decisions. But think about it. You know, we write poetry, we write literature. And oftentimes those kind of agencies don't exist. I mean, the police department is an agency and you could write work and and and. And, and you write this stuff, but what's absent from the stuff is anything that's reflecting the kind of stated rationale of some of these agencies when they actually do state their rationale. And then even, a, 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 like in my book, it's not even a discussion of a sort of unstated rationale. But imagine trying to talk about, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fucking government document right now. The White House sent out a document that's like, um, why we call, um, it's like something like the... Um, those MS-13 animals. This is yeah. like this is a this is a government document. This ain't this is not something that was said on some random blog, right? This is WhiteHouse.gov. Why you what you need to know about the violent animals of MS-13? Now you know this is so when we create the things that we create, how much of it is kind of influenced and, and, and reflective of this? Or a, a different kind of example around mass incarceration in 1992. The attorney general Barr wrote, uh, uh, um, they produced a, a report called The Case for More Incarceration. I mean, this is the federal government. This is the Department of Justice producing a report that's making the case for more incarceration and publishing it. You know, how much does my work reflect the existence of those kind of things? Not nearly enough, which I think is, um, is problematic, given that I think, you know, the kind of force... Of, of, of Donald Trump, you know, having on the, the, the website of the White House an article that says what you need to know about the violent animals of MS-13, the kind of force that carries is, is insane. And particularly for me, because one of the first person, people that, that like stood up for me in prison when I was a 16-year-old 
and, and I was sort of lost and struggling was an El Salvadorian cat from MS-13. And so I know, I know personally that the broad brush, that, that first of all, you know, to say violent animals denigrates both animals and humans, right? That they sort of categorize the discussion in that way, right? To use animals as a pejorative, it denigrates both animals, but it also denigrates like humans as well, right? Um, and it's, it's not exact in any kind of way. And it's just, you know, I will hope that the next thing I write is reflective of this. When I wrote my memoir and I talked about my relationship with this cat named Snoop, mm-hmm. I wasn't writing it with, with this context in mind. And I hope that the next thing I write is, you know, I hope that I'm, I'm more attentive to the fact that all writing exists within the context of the political world and the political landscape in which I live in. Um, yeah. Before we go too much farther, I feel like I really would love to ask you to read a poem for us. And I was thinking of your 2015 poem for the city that nearly broke me, which I think um, maybe follows our discussion pretty naturally. Um, would you Would you mind reading it? Uh, yeah, no problem. For the city that nearly broke me. A woman tattoos Malik's name above her breast and talks about the conspiracy to destroy blacks. This is all a fancy way to say that someone kirked out, empty five or six or seven shots into a still warm body. No indictment follows Malik's death, follows smoke running from a fired pistol. An old quarrel, crimson against concrete and the officer's gun still smoking. Someone says the people need to stand up, that the system's glass house falling on only a few heads. This and a stop snitching ass out of conundrum and damn all that blood. All those closed eyes imagine the Malik's killer forever coffled to a series of cells. And you almost believe them. You do. Except the cognac in your hand is an old habit. A toast to friends buried before the daybreak of their old age. You know the truth of the talking, of the quarrels, and how history lets the blame go blameless for the blood that flows black in the street. You imagine there is a riot going on and someone is tossing a trash can through Sal's window calling that revolution. While behind us, cell doors keep clanking closed and Malik's casket door clanks closed and the bodies that roll and the bodies that roll and the bodies that roll off the block and into the prisons and into the ground. Those bodies that roll off the block and into the prison and into the ground keep rolling. And no one will admit that this is the way America strangles itself. Thank you. It's kind of an amazing and very powerful mechanical image of the system at the end of that poem. Um, You've written about going back into prisons, how you feel uh, both familiarity and strangeness uh, how's this conversation between you and people currently incarcerated affected your writing? Going in as a public defender is different, I think, because because uh, people don't give a fuck if you've been locked up, and they and they shouldn't, you know. Right. Um, they they are concerned with their incarceration, and um, and that that's you know shit. I mean, that's real. That's that's understandable. Uh, so I, I I get that, but um, and so what it's done for me, I think that that sort of idea of grappling 
with uh, going in when I was working in the public defender's office was realizing the ways in which my rhetoric about criminal justice reform, whatever it might be, this sort of underlying current, the, the thing that was like really real was that, um, you know, people locked up and they want to go home. Yeah. And, and the stuff that I was saying could could really only matter but a bit. So that was one thing. And um and in terms of in terms of like uh, now in terms of um reflecting on friends that I know, I think for me um my work is invested in um in their lives. A law degree was an opportunity um, for me to for me to force my way into a conversation, and then and then I get a law degree, and it's like, yeah, but my friends ain't making parole, and they going up for parole every year. Or, you know, what do you do for somebody that has fifty years? You try to find a way to get them a lawyer, and then what if somebody has fifty years and they're guilty? Then then you help them write a clemency petition. And so I found myself doing these other things that um that keeps me connected to incarceration. And, and, you know, my work has grown and it's changed. People say, Dwayne, are you always going to write about prison? And I'm like, I'm like, you know, let's, let's be honest, you know, writing about incarceration um, is, is an expansive thing. And it's more than just one or two or, or like a thousand things. And that I'm, I'm arrogant as, as anybody else, but I'm not so arrogant as to believe that I've even adequately covered what it meant to serve a day in prison, let alone to serve decades and decades. And so what has happened is that, you know, what I do is is completely tied to that. And, and does that mean that you won't get an epic poem about trees from me? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's not what I'm going to write. I, I'm not I'm not going to write the 500 word poem about garbage. Like literally, that's not going to be the thing I'm, I'm writing. But um, but I'm gonna try my best to write about the thing that's in the center for me of what it means to be an American today: immigration and incarceration. You know, this is the center of what it means to be an American. Um, so yeah, I wanted to mention this essay that of yours that I really think is great. Um, it comes from American Poetry Review called "Feeling Fucked Up," and it's about um, the poetry of. Um, Etheridge Knight. Um, and in it, you know, you're talking, you address some of the ideas that you're addressing now, which is, you know, prison is an individual tragedy, but there's also a collective narrative and architecture to this, you know. Um, and you see that through, uh, um, you see him as somebody who's beginning to articulate that. And we see that more directly in, in a, a book like um, The New Jim Crow. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about that essay and how you discovered uh, Etheridge Knight's poetry uh, a little bit. Oh, I would, I would, I would kind of probably think about that in reverse. I mean, I think that if you look at the work of Etheridge Knight, you see what it means to be incarcerated and an impact on je- on not just the individual but the family far more acutely than you do by reading a book like The New Jim Crow. Right. I think I think one of the things that any of those texts written about incarceration. One of the things that most op-eds written about incarceration, one of the things that like most legislation advanced to reform incarceration, fundamentally can't grapple with, that poets have to grapple with, is what it means to be guilty, 
what it means to be violent, what it means to know violent people. You take a poem like For Freckle Face Gerald, which is about a 16-year-old who gets incarcerated and then gets raped. That poem is obviously about the violence that men inflict on each other in prison, but it's also about the structural violence of the state. And, and the poem names itself as such. The poem names itself as like, Gerald not knowing the older and wiser bu- buzzards that plotted for the loss of his balls decades in advance. Like, like Etheridge Knight names that thing. And if you take a poem like um, the idea of ancestry, and he's talking about looking at 47 photos on the wall, and those walls are pictures of his family members, and he starts recounting how he almost kicked his habit. And in the poem, he doesn't tell you, but the habit, the heroin habit he picked up while being a soldier in the Korean War, right? The poem didn't go into that, which invites a discussion of the structural issues, or the ways in which society brings us to this point that, yeah, society isn't responsible for our incarceration, but there could be all kinds of responses to criminal behavior besides putting people in cages. But anyway, in that poem, it's Etheridge Knight grappling with his complicity and what happened that took him away from his family. So I actually think that the poetry does a far better job than, than like a book, any book that's nonfiction, that, that's, that's agenda-driven, could ever do. Mm-hmm. Because what I say about Bachelors of the Reagan era is it's not driven by an agenda. You know, I, I think that if, if the honesty and truth carries its own agenda and demands that we respond to each other and to society in a different way, and I don't need to tell you that I'm flawless to invite you to respond to me in a better way when I'm writing poetry. But when I'm writing, um, and when I'm writing memoirs, it's the same thing, but when I'm writing, like, academic articles, when I'm writing you know, op-eds, that shit is is, is, is is driven by ideology. That shit is driven by me being convinced that I need a cudgel to make you see things my way. So I am, like, adamantly against this notion that no matter how impactful, I don't even like using, like, but no matter how impactful any any of these texts have been that have, that have made it into the mainstream consciousness, that they ever do a better job of literature, of music, of poetry, because they don't. Because if they did, then, then, then the first act of the federal legislation right now, criminal justice reform, prison reform, it would be far more robust. It mm. wouldn't be what it is right now. And in that 2009 interview with NPR, you talked about feeling conflicted and, and you talked about this uh, telling stories that also belong to other people in addition to yourself and with wrestling of questions of how to back away from writing about violence that violence is what we already know. That, that was what you said about, about prisoners. Uh, so I wonder how you do that and what other books, I mean, you talked really beautifully about um, about Night, and then which other books have you turned to as models for that work? One great thing is a recent podcast that's, that's, that's come out called Air Hustle. And the reason why I think Air Hustle is great is, is um, it does some things that's like real, real subtle. Um, that, that contrast, I think, some things that folks in the criminal justice reform movement have um, consistently done. So, in Ear Hustle, it's, it's, it's produced in San Quentin, and it's, it's, it's hosted by this guy that's incarcerated and a woman that's a volunteer. And every time they, and it's, you know, it's about prison, it's about life in prison, but every time they have a prisoner speak, the person first says it's crime and how much time he's doing. He's doing. And doesn't dwell on it. You know, it's just like boom, boom, and moves on. But it's not afraid to confront like what happened to get the person incarcerated. And, and the other thing it does is it's not, you know, when I wrote my memoir, there were things that I just, I was 27 and, and having, I was 27 when it was published, but I probably was like 25 or 26 when I wrote it. And having been incarcerated at that time, you know, I've been incarcerated a third of my life. And I just wasn't, 
I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't ready um, to write about certain things, to talk about certain things. I just didn't know how. And what they do a great job of doing is they not hiding things. You know, I, it's, it's like I don't think that I'm less worthy of dignity because of X wrong that I've committed. Um, other people who have who have done that well, I mean, it's a lot of writers I think who have, um, you know, Randall Horton, uh, John Mario, contemporaries and friends of mine who've done a good job of writing about these issues. But it's it's even in, in other things like um, Crush, this book by this cat named Sykin, which isn't about incarceration at all, but finds a way to beautifully write about um, a love affair, and you know, it's a series of poems about a relationship with, with, between these two men. Um, but it's just devastating, and it's, and it's done in a way that's graceful, in a way that doesn't really have a sense of shame to it. Um, but I, I think, you know, great writing is always, has always found a way to do these things. And, um, and when I approach it, I think now, um, I think now when I approach it, my thing is to try to be as informed as possible about the world and the landscape I'm writing about, to not just take for granted that just because I've been there, I know everything that is needed to know. And I and I try to do things like interview people. I try to do things like like conscientiously engage with folks to kind of figure out where my gaps are to the to the degree that like there are these huge gaps. What do you think about pop culture depictions of life in prison? I was thinking about Oz or Orange is the New Black. Uh, I like Piper, so I'm not criticize Orange is the New Black. I will say I, I once criticized Orange is the New Black, and uh, and a friend of mine said, um, <laughs> I shouldn't even say this either, but a friend of mine was like, um, he he said something like he was aghast or something at my critique of the New Black or something. I was like, you could find a whole lot of things to be aghast about but not my criticism of a fucking television show. (laughs) (laughs) But for television depictions, I say most of them are horrible. Um, Or most of them, I mean, most of them lean towards certain recognizable tropes. And maybe all television does that, but great television doesn't. And and it's sad the way in which stuff about prison just always does it. It's as if, you know, there's no way that people imagine doing this without... um, Without, without relying on these kind of tropes. Could you could you talk about those stereotypes and tropes, like what you think those are? Oh yes, yeah, I mean the obvious one. It's like you know, violence um, is rape. It's uh, <laughs> illiteracy. It's um, this notion that escape is is, is ever possible. You know, um, things like that. That, um, but also, what, what it, and, and maybe it's also revealed in what's not discussed. You know, you think about. Somebody like Wilbur Rideau and the Angolite who produced this amazing um, newspaper for years uh, in Angola. And they were winning national magazine awards. Like, you won't see a prison show that has that kind of vibrant public life. It's a guy that's incarcerated right now uh, in Minnesota who got a memoir that's recently released or soon will be released. And he's been incarcerated for, for like a couple decades, I think, and has much more time to do. But he is actually, you know, engaged in his work and he's a good writer. You have um, writing programs all across the country. I will say it's not enough writing programs in prisons across the country. It's not enough college and prison across the country. But those things exist and those things could be the platform. Now, we were talking about doing reality TV shows 
back when I was locked up, before everybody and their mama had a reality TV show. And it was just like, yo, they could just follow us on a yard and it'd be a hell of a show. I have no idea how we got into this conversation, <laughs> but it was, you know, but it was, um, it was me and a couple friends of mine, and we were just talking, and it was it was shit that was happening, you know, and some of the stuff that was happening wasn't rooted in violence, and it wasn't rooted in perversity, and it wasn't like rooted in destitution. It was it was rooted in people trying to figure out a way to live in conditions that weren't conducive to living. And also, the other thing that that you never see in these shows is really like the way the system so pervasively seeks to to like strip you of of things that make you human, you know. So first of all, like you, it's no conjugal visits anywhere in the country except four states, right? So uh, and, and conjugal visits and family mem- visits are more than just about sex. It's about intimacy. It's about being able to spend forty-eight hours with your child. You know, right. it's about being able to read your child a bedtime story, to cook a meal with your child, because these are things that mark the living as living, and have always done so. And you can read Blood Meridian. As fucked up as that book is, as violent as that book is, these motherfuckers still eat together. <laughs> I mean, they still like sit around and fight. They still talk. Yeah. And, and, and if you think about most of these things about prison, even the conversations that happen in a lot of these prison shows, it's never just two people vulnerable and talking about something that has nothing to do with their current condition and situation. So, um, so I think I, I would think about those as criticisms and, um, uh, and I would think that the biggest criticism is everything that's left out, you know. Could I ask you to close out the show for us by telling us about writing uh, your poem from 2010, Prison, um, one of several poems, I think, by that name, and reading that for us? Yeah, so that poem comes from, um, it's a riff on a George, a George Herbert poem called Prayer One. And... Um, and, you know, standard definition poem, but I think that the interesting thing about the Herbert poem, uh, you know, guy that was obviously uh, uh, like a religious poet is, is in, in talking about and talking about prayer and defining prayer. He, he just has these like stunning turns of phrases. He says, um, uh, let me try to think. He says something like um, he calls it the, the bird of paradise. And one one and in one line he calls it something like the um the soul and paraphrase. Prayer as the soul and paraphrase. I mean that is just a kind of beautiful and arresting image. And so I wanted to write about prison, um and about you know, both the expansiveness and frustration of it. Prison. Prison. The sinner's bouquet, house of shredded and torn dear John letters. Up in the grave of names, moon black kiss of a pistol's flat side, time blue born and threaded into a curse, Lazarus a hustlers, the picayune spinning in the beatdowns, breath of a thief stilled by fluorescent lights, a system of 40 blocks, empty vows, a handful of purple cranes bills, memories of crates suspended from stairs, tied in knots around street lamps, the house of unending push-ups, wheelbarrows and walking 20s, the daughters chasing their father's shadows, sons that upset the wind with their secrets, the paraphrase of fractured, scarred wings flying through smoke, each wild hour of lockdown, hunger time, and the blackened flower. Dwayne, that's an amazing poem. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, no, thank you. That was that was that was great. I actually got an idea for um 
that's cool. I got an idea for the how to finish this last book from that. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, wait, our podcast is now, like, that is the best compliment we could ever get. Um, thanks again. And we really appreciate your kicking off this topic with us. I think that this is such a great entry point into, uh, I think, our, what's going to be a multi-part conversation about incarceration in America. And I'm so happy that you were here to talk about it with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, guys. And now we'd like to welcome Zachary Lazar to the show. Zach is the author of five books, including Sway, Evening's Empire, I Pity the Poor Immigrant, and most recently, Vengeance, which the New York Times describes as absorbing and prismatic. Welcome, Zach. Thank you, Sugi. Thanks, Wet, too. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, look, we're doing this series of two episodes on the fiction, nonfiction podcast with four authors who've written about the carceral state and mass incarceration. We just spoke to Dwayne Betts. We're going to be speaking to Tayari Jones and Damaris Hill. You're here because your new novel centers on a convicted felon, Kendrick King, who is imprisoned at Louisiana State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Angola. I know you're a professor at Tulane. I know you live in Louisiana. But for this novel, why? Why this subject? Why Kendrick King? Why Angola? Well, when I came to New Orleans uh, to take a job at Tulane, I eventually met a now a good friend of mine, Deborah Luster, who's a photographer who's well known for uh, work she's done in prisons and also about crime in New Orleans. And I do similar work uh, in my other books. I had done similar work. And we, why do we do this work? We both do this work because we both had a parent who was murdered. Um, and what is more bizarre than that is that both of those murders happened in the same city, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, they were both contract killings. The same detective worked both cases for a while. And then many years later, by fate or coincidence, we ended up living in New Orleans, where neither of us is, is from. We live two blocks away from each other now. And so when we met, Deborah was just about to go back to Angola prison to do some more fo photographs. Uh, they were presenting a passion play at the prison. Which uh, is the in the book. It's in the book, yes. Yeah. So the book started out as, as uh, nonfiction, an essay I wrote about that passion play. And I had a lot more to say, and so I, I kind of then took that nonfiction essay and morphed it into an imaginary novel that is presented as a, it's kind of a, a fake documentary, this book, um, in, the, in the sense that the central character, Kendrick King, is not real. He's a fictional character. Um, a lot of the things that happened in the book I didn't actually do, or... Um, although I did go to the prison that, that week and several times after that, when I got to Angola. Um, all of that stuff about our past, my past and Deborah's past, did work its way into everything I saw. But what I really saw was the criminal justice system close up and personal for the first time. Um, and I saw that in Louisiana, and I saw that at uh, a place, uh, Angola, where most of the people incarcerated there will never get out. And uh, an overwhelming majority of those folks are black. And so these issues became the focus first of the essay and then of this novel. So the question of how to write about mass incarceration as a white writer is, is really front and center in the book. And the narrator who's telling us the story is white and shares many characteristics with you. And Kendrick King is black. And you even have a chapter whose heading is gaze. Uh, can you talk about how you thought about writing this book specifically 
as a white writer and taking on the the justice system that you just described? Yes. Well, I knew that this was going to be very problematic. That's why I put myself in the book as the narrator. Um, I guess what I would say is, and I've said it before, is that uh, writing across that racial divide, if you're a white writer, uh, is rightfully challenging because if you do it badly, you enhance that divide. That's one thing to think about. The other thing to think about was that I was originally there as a journalist, and many people that I spoke to literally said to me, please tell our stories, tell our stories to the world. So you have those two things to weigh against one another. Um, and it was something I thought about every single day that I wrote this book. And, you know, I had a, I had a decision to make. I could either see what I saw during that week and go on with my life, or I could not do that. I could, I could try to write about it. We did an entire essay, uh, episode of the podcast uh, with Danielle Clayton and uh, Aisha Pandey partly about the sort of whiteness of, of uh, the publishing world, but also about the idea of writing across uh, racial lines and talking about that. And it's something that I've done, something that I find difficult, but also felt is important and have been encouraged to do by writers that I respect. Um, but I always mm-hmm. worry that I'm going to screw it up, you know, <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And also, were there, was there anyone who said to you, hey, don't do this. You shouldn't write this book. Nobody ever said that. Um, and uh, in fact, the opposite. I mean, I, I published the, the essay that preceded the novel and, and many black friends read the essay and gave it a lot of support, encouragement, encouraged me to write this book. It's, it's a valuable thing to do if you do it conscientiously and, and uh, you know, I think that it, I think that there's a along with the, the problem of being kind of careless or blasé about it, which is a problem. Uh, there's the other problem of freezing up or being um, so um, so paranoid about the possibility of doing something wrong that you don't do anything. Yeah, and, and I don't think that's valuable. I think it's the opposite of valuable, of course. So, uh, you know, again, I mean, what I saw at Angola changed my whole way of seeing the world. And so I need to, if I'm going to continue to be a writer, I need to write about race. That's, that's just the way it is. One of the interesting things about one of the essays we talked about in that, in that uh, to harken back to that episode, was uh, Ellison's essay, uh, 20th Century Liter- Literature and the Black Mask of Humanity. And you know, he's where he's encouraging white writers to to write across the racial divide. But one of the reasons that he says it's important to do so is that it's kind of un, he's talking about economic terms. Like it is impossible to understand the economy of the United States without thinking about race. And in certain ways, I feel like, look, it's, you know, white white people are not uninvolved in the presence of the mass incarceration state. They just don't have to right. think about it, but that doesn't mean they're not a part of it, you know? I wondered if you could yeah. speak toward that idea. Well, I, I think that, uh, again, like you said, white people don't have to think about race unless they want to. Um, but they also don't have to think about prison for the most part unless they want to. You know, I mean, well, you said, like, I mean, you know, that hadn't been a part of your life, right? Well, I mean... Sort of. I mean, my my father was murdered, so it, it is something that I. I That's true. The world of crime and criminals is certainly something I've thought about quite a bit. But, and I and I and I, I also have friends who are white who are in prison, so I, I don't want to discount their their part. Yes, of white this people story. do go to prison. 
Um, I think that the race, the racism of prison is is complicated and pervasive and huge, and uh, it is something that, again, it's it, it, it's in the book. It's it's a huge part of the book. Um, I, I I think that it's it's part of the whole picture of America, and um, if, if if you're not seeing it as part of that picture, then you're not seeing the picture. I mean, when we were talking to Dwayne Betts, he was talking about the importance of moving beyond certain tropes that appear over and over again in pop culture when it comes to the experience of prison. And you're talking about, um, you know, your experience of going to Angola, kind of overturning your your worldview. Um, and I think just to go back to Ellison for a second, you know, that that essay, um, which after we did in that episode, I actually I did it in class with my students. I mean, it's just such a stunning essay, in part because it just sort of talks about the ways in which sort of our com- our complicity with racism is so tied to American capitalism. And of course, the prison system is just intensely tied to um, capitalism in the United States. I mean, it's an industry and there's just this huge amount of money going into it. Um, the issue of private prisons has come up several times recently beyond sort of the question of the money. Then there's the question of just kind of the images we see of who do we see um who do we see getting arrested um, often, like now in recent in recent um, times with more cameras out there, people getting hassled by the police, um, getting arrested, facing police brutality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those are often black Americans. And then also our, the images that we get of prison are, um, you know, Dwayne mentioned um, what rape, um, certain kinds of like, say, alliances within the prison system. Um, that might be me and not Dwayne, actually. But just sort of like the the cheesy things that you think about what jail is like. I mean, I, like I used to watch Prison Break for like, which is, I mean, you know, well, fantasies you, of escape. I mean, the one thing, and I yeah. really love it. So you're bringing up the capitalist side of this, right? You know that these prisons are an industry that they that in a sense, if you think about those stereotypes that Dwayne was talking about. It's like advertising for the need for our industry. Exactly. I mean, it's not just yeah. accidental. And then it becomes, not if it was, it was sinister already, but it becomes even more sinister in a way to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I should say that Angola is, is a little bit, it doesn't quite fit into the for-profit model because it's right. unlike other institutions in Louisiana, which are for-profit prisons. Uh, Angola is a, is a, has an annual budget from the state that is too low, and so it's it's kind of in a weird way the opposite of a for-profit prison. Uh, although they they are all kind of working in the field for for very low pay, so in that sense, it is there is some profit going on there. But I think that uh, to go back to the question though of stereotypes and tropes, which is interesting to me, I think that the overwhelming thing that I saw. And I spoke to oh, over 40 people over the course of a week, so I'm frequently speaking to them many times. Um, was m- mostly how ordinary people were um, and how little the story I needed to tell had to do with violence or prison rape, etc. I don't want to discount the violence that happens in prison because it's very real. One of the people I interviewed, who I remember very fondly, was just murdered um, at Angola a couple of months ago. Uh, that happens. But what I really found was that what I ended up talking about was philosophical and spiritual questions that had to do with being incarcerated for a very long time and probably forever. And what that means 
not necessarily physically, but spiritually to people. Um, that was the substance of the conversation. And uh, I think that that was what defied this tropes or stereotypes the most for me was, was talking to people, many of whom had not even graduated high school, who had very deep uh, worldly things to say about the human condition. And these conversations were unbelievable. I think you write about this really well in the book. Uh, there's a passage um, from the ch- that same chapter Sugi mentioned, Gaze, uh, right at the beginning. Uh, could you read that to us? Yes, sure. So this, this section starts with two quotations from fake uh, newspaper clippings that are about the case of Kendrick King, who is the centerpiece of the book, who says that he was coerced to give a false confession to a crime he never committed. The detective told me he wanted me to be a witness against Jeffries, King testified Wednesday. I said I didn't know why he wanted me as a witness if I wasn't there. That's one quotation. Then the next one is from the assistant district attorney. You will hear that Kendra King conspired with Lawrence Jeffries and Antoinette Cook to commit an armed robbery for drugs, money, or both, and that this conspiracy led to the murder of Damian Martin. You will hear that the motive for Kendrick King to commit this murder was a need to get high because he was addicted to drugs because he was sick. Two versions of a single story. In the first, a black man is saying that a white man's story is fiction. In the second, a white man is saying that a black man's story is fiction. I know which story I would prefer to believe, and I know you know which one you'd prefer to believe. But of course, none of that has anything to do with which version is true. It's a problem not just of facts, but of imagination. The crow wished everything was black, William Blake wrote. The owl that everything was white. He wasn't talking about race. I'm not only talking about race. I'm talking about the problem of seeing anything clearly in the time and place in which we live. When I was younger, my life in the shadow of my father's death sometimes felt unreal, like a dream before the inevitable waking up that would be my own death. I knew better, and yet I didn't. I was also a hedonist, and yet a part of me was drawn to darkness, the infinitude that would affirm my insignificance. My friend Joel once said that the subject of my writing was the problem of violence. I had thought it was the problem of good and evil, but he was right. I hadn't anticipated that the conversations I had in the, erodi- in the rodeo arena at Angola were conversations I'd been waiting to have for most of my life. Almost all the people I spoke to had committed acts of violence. They were intimidating. They looked different from me. They had survived ordeals I would not have survived. Yet I found it easy to talk to them. Easier to talk to than strangers with whom I ostensibly had more in common, quote. Even easier to talk to than some people I call friends. There was no elusiveness, no petty negotiations of identity. Eventually, there was even humor, but it was the kind of humor that grows not out of trying to outwit each other, but out of a playful testing of commonalities. I valued the humor, but I valued the commonalities more. It became obvious very quickly that the conversations were not just about violence, but about injustice. What I mean is that I had to ask myself why these people had ended up there as prisoners and why I ended up there as a journalist or whatever I was. Maybe that was the temptation I succumbed to. Maybe I thought that my identification with people like Kendrick was a move away from the problem of violence 
a move away from what increasingly felt like an adolescent preoccupation with darkness toward a more mature concern for the problem of injustice. Maybe that was why I got so immersed. Zach, maybe you can talk to us about what day-to-day life is really like in Angola, or at least what your experience of daily life was as an outsider. I don't know anything about Angola. Yeah, well, the first impression one would make of Angola is of a southern prison farm. Um, it's very large. It's bigger than Manhattan. It has farm what? fields. Wait a second. Yeah, it's it's bigger than Manhattan. And so there are many different camps and many different prisons within this giant space that is bordered by rivers and mountains such that there doesn't even need to be a perimeter fence around this place. Um, It's very hard to escape from it. Um, And, you know, it would not be unlikely that you would form a, a picture of modern day slavery because you have inmates working in the farm fields most of whom are black, being overseen by white men on horseback with guns. Um, that's a that's a very vivid uh. first impression one often makes in Angola. Uh, now, having said that, there is some nuance to work into this because um, it is. Can we just go back a little bit and like what yeah. they're working fields that are, are for what reason? Whose fields are they? What are they doing? I mean, what what is the actual purpose of the work other than just probably, to waste time? Uh, no, they're literally growing. They're growing vegetables for food for the prison there and for and for the prison system in general. OK, they're raising cattle. I don't think the cattle are slaughtered on the premises, but they are a lot of cattle there. Um, there's a license plate fact. uh factory there. There are poultry farms and there's a poultry plant, I believe. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, labor that goes on at Angola. It, it also has this flavor of a military uh, encampment. Um, it's all men, of course. They sleep mostly in dormitories with about 60 guys per dorm. Does the movie uh, HUD take place there? It doesn't, but it's very reminiscent. Yeah. Okay, I mean, because everything you're describing sounds like that film. Yeah, no, it's very it, exactly. That's uh, it, it. Very, very much reminds one of of that. Um, the thing that should be said about Angola: it was once the bloodiest prison in America. Um, it is. It is not the most bloody prison in America now. Um, but what it is instead is this place where people are serving these extraordinarily long sentences, usually after having had very inadequate trials. And so um, there's also this odd monastic quality to it because people are, are, are locked up for their lives and they are, they're thinking about that a lot. And there are all these clubs and organizations within the prison, uh, anything from a chess club to various religious groups, singing groups, musical groups, the sports, um, there is a rodeo that happens uh, t- two times a year, um, and part of the rodeo also includes a huge uh, craft fair where uh, guys who make anything from jewelry to elaborate lawn furniture out of wood, they can sell that stuff during the rodeo. Um, it is uh, it's, it's hard to describe the the strangeness of Angola and I, I still go there a lot. I'm going there tomorrow actually to visit a friend and what always strikes me is how I've forgotten how bizarre it is and how chilling it is. 
even though I've been there a lot of times. Um, so I know that when I arrive there tomorrow at the gate, I will again be, will be stunned by the place itself. Um, everybody who is able-bodied works in those fields. They start working for, I think, five cents an hour. The maximum, you get a series of raises. The maximum raise takes you to 20 cents an hour. Oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Can we go back for a second to you said that Angola is the not was the bloodiest prison and isn't now. How does where does that statistic come from and how is that met, measured? <laughs> is that sort of in prison in prison violence statistics that there that exist? Yes, I'm not a good statistics person, so I couldn't really tell you that. But I, I this is just the the general story, and it's told to me over and over again by incarcerated people. So uh, the bad old days are sort of over, and it's uh, it's attributed to a couple of different wardens, uh, most notably, though, a guy who was there for over 20 years, no longer there. But he Christianized the prison, and that had a large effect on the violence. It had other effects that I would not be so uh, approving of. But... Uh, the, again, there there is this. I so I have a friend now for five years who's written his own novel about Angola. He's serving a life sentence there, and I was just rereading a passage of it, and he and he talks about this too in his novel about how uh, it's a scene in which a, a young man is just arriving there and he's getting his his feet uh, figuring out what's going on, and he realizes that ah, that this is not the the uh, wild, dangerous place that I thought it was going to be. That those days are sort of in the past and that what you have now is people just trying to make the best of what's here um, either so that they can try to get out someday or keep their level of privilege within this sort of hierarchy of privileges that are that exists in that there within the space of angola there are there are different layers of freedom levels of freedom one can can have um, and so if you have the highest level of privilege, you can, you know, for example, a man who, who, who works for the prison magazine, um, he has a key to that office and he can go in there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even at night, he can leave his dorm and go in there. He has an extraordinarily high level of, of, of freedom within that institution. It's very unusual. Um, it's its own world is what I think I'm trying to convey. It really is its own world. Um, it sounds and, like its own country. Yes. Yes. Could you it talk is. to us a little bit about um, Kendrick King? Uh, sure. You know, is he a composite character? How did you come up with this character? And one of the central motors of the book's plot is the narrator's attempt to sort of wrestle with Kendrick's innocence or lack of innocence when it comes to the crime that he's charged okay. with. You're like, why is that important to the narrator? I'd like to talk about that as well. Well, it's funny. I, I actually was just on the phone this morning with, with my friend Quantos, who's the the uh, writer in prison that I just talked to you about. And he had finally gotten his – he had read Vengeance in manuscript um, and given me feedback. And then he finally got his copy of the finished book and, and read it. And we talked this morning. And and he he said something to me that I thought was, was miraculously on the, on, the, on the nose, which was that my – my preoccupation in the book with this question of Kendrick's innocence or guilt was really a preoccupation with my father's innocence or guilt because my father was murdered by contract killers, hitmen. By he was testifying against um, his former business partner, and the, that man hired these guys to kill him. 
And so whenever something like that happens, you have this question that people ask is, well, you know, why was he in business with this guy in the first place? And, and how much did he deserve to get murdered in this garage? How I just guilty- want to break in briefly and say that you wrote about this in, in Evening's Empire so that the readers can look that up if they want. That's right. Yes. And that, that previous book is sort of woven into the new book. Um, so at any rate, that's the that's the that's kind of the deep thematic interest for me, I suppose, in, in this question of Kendrick's innocence or guilt. But I think I'm a novelist. And so this book is really much more artificial than perhaps it seems. And I was really using consciously anyway, using this question of whether he was innocent or guilty. Uh, as a plot device, um, as a way to generate suspense and to structure a novel that would give me a way to tell a, a story about this man who is made up, who's a fictional character, um, by looking at different scenarios in which this character is either complicit in this crime or has nothing to do with it, um, by having this narrator who's essentially me going around interviewing Kendrick's family members, his girlfriends, um, people who knew him, that we get to see a wider portrait, um, kind of like the way that Citizen Kane works, where um, the journalist is going around trying to piece together the mystery of Rosebud. Why did, why did he say that word on his, on his deathbed? The movie is, is a series of interviews that trigger these scenes that, that illustrate Kane's actual life. And so that was kind of what I had in mind. I get that as a plot device, and I understand that completely. I mean, it's necessary. All, all novels need them. Um, but in terms of, and I, I don't think you hand, I don't think you handle it this way. I mean, I think one of the questions that it seems to be asking, and I think is an important question, is like thinking about whether or not the innocence or guilt of the people in a place like Angola should matter matter that much to us when we think mm-hmm. about people in prison. Well, I, I think that what the book is, is is a bit of a bait and switch. It uses these sort of suspense of is he innocent, is he guilty, um, to as you go deeper into the book, I think you realize that that's not really the important question. The, the important question is does it really matter right. uh, and if he's innocent or guilty? Um, and it's a much deeper question than that. And that those words, I hope by the end of the book, start to lose – a certain amount of their meaning. Um, there is, of course, factual guilt and factual innocence, but there's also this other thing of um, the complexity of a human life. You were talking earlier about um, detectives and the detective who worked the case um, on your father and also briefly on on Deborah Lister, and you have a detective character in Vengeance, and I don't want to conclude this without talking about Lagarde. So maybe um, to close our conversation, we could return to Kendrick's point of view, um, which is, and I wonder if you could read it. There's a bit at the beginning of chapter 29. Sure. This is um, toward the very end of the book. Um, Kendrick has just been interrogated for a very long time. Mm -hmm. He's confessed after he first said he had nothing to do with it. He's been He's been recorded saying he was involved in this murder, and now he's being driven home by Lagarde after this very long night. He's being driven back to his mother's house. Uh, It starts out with a quote from the transcript of Kendrick's interrogation. Lagarde, okay, is everything you've told me true and correct to the best of your knowledge? King, yes, sir. Lagarde, okay. And how do you feel you've been treated by me tonight, Kendrick? King, Fairly, fair. 
The back of the car is dark, the glass between him and Lagarde almost opaque, no air conditioning coming in through the vent, the windows tinted so that everything outside is a field of bluish black with faint smudged pinpoints of white light. He sits like a child with his legs at an angle, his hands cuffed behind his back. There's a kind of cage built around the back of the car, which adds to the feeling of absurdity, of over-preparedness, the cuffs on too tight, cutting into the bones of his wrists and impeding the circulation in his fingers. He sits without speaking in the dark blue space, hearing the occasional noise of Lagarde's radio with little idea of where they are until Lagarde makes a turn off the main road and he can somehow sense that this is his mother's street, Avenue F. He'd wondered, as Lagarde had brought him out after they'd made the tapes, how he was going to get his mother her car back. He had driven his mother's car to the detective bureau. He had even asked Lagarde about it, and Lagarde hadn't answered, just told him to stop straining. The blue and white lights are flashing, but there's no siren. Lagarde pulls into the empty driveway, the headlights shining on the front of the house with such brightness that you can almost hear it as a sound. He announces their arrival on his radio, then reads out the number on the odometer. Janelle and Desiree, Desiree and Janelle. After all that back and forth between his girlfriends, he has finally moved in with his mother, back to this little house made of orange brick with a tiny cement porch in front, two white columns, all of it lit up starkly now, like a scene from some crime show on TV. Clean up her face, Kendrick. He remembers that moment at the Oakwood Mall, bent down over Asia in the stroller to wipe her face and seeing her cheeks, her nose, so intricate and small she seemed to have been shaped from a mold, his baby girl. He couldn't believe how it made him feel. Asia, Janelle, his girls. It's almost five in the morning, but it's completely dark, or at least it looks completely dark from inside the car. It's the second time in a month he's been handcuffed in the back of a police car. Clean up her face, Kendrick. Still looking for a job, getting ready for school in a few weeks, thinking about becoming an EMT, all his clothes and garbage bags on the floor of his bedroom in his mother's house. He moves his fingers to try to get some blood into them, but the little movements make the cuffs bite into the bones of his wrists in a different, sharper way, his arms tingling now, pins and needles from the shoulders down. Thanks, Zach. Sure, you bet. And thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. What great questions. Really wonderful to hear the answers. Thanks again. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on our LidHub show page, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading, and welcome to UMKC MFA students Aaron Saxon and Kevin Coder. They'll be interning with us and co-producing the show this summer.